So two weeks ago, James preached a message on verses 6 and 7 of Luke chapter 2. Today's message will focus in on verses 8 through 14. The following paragraph. This is the paragraph about the shepherds. Now, there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over the flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. This text and the entirety of this chapter are a text, like many texts in Scripture, that have a lot of scholarly debate. Many of which is many of these debates are entirely unnecessary and just beside the point. But some debates that involve this text are related to where was Jesus born. Not just Bethlehem, but specifically, what was the location of Jesus' birth? Was he born in a barn? Was he born in a cave? Was it a storage room under a house? Was it like a garage or a drive-in basement on the side of, uh, under a house built on a hill? Maybe it might be true that this text is not written for that purpose, to tell us the precise details. Some of our songs say that uh, Jesus was born in a manger. You realize he was not born in a manger. He was laid in a manger after he was born. We can be so careless and sloppy with our words about the location of Jesus' birth, but maybe the location is not the point. There's also debate about the identity and purpose of the shepherds. Were these really the outcasts of society? Were these criminals who couldn't get better jobs? Were they homeless vagabonds who were rejected by the world at large? Or were they young children who happened to be the least special or least favored yet most trusted in their families, so they send the youngest out to go watch the kids? Were they keepers of the lambs used for the most important role, which is temple sacrifice? Effectively, employees of the government who are the royal guards of the official lambs. Were these shepherds named in this text for us to view them in, as part of the larger shepherd motif, which is throughout the scripture? We don't see much description of the shepherds in our text. Perhaps the identity of the shepherds is not the point. Another question When was Jesus born, precisely? Was it, in fact, December 25th? You as a child might grow up thinking, well, Christmas Day, December 25th, that's Jesus' birthday. But then something might have happened to you in your later years where you're like, well, actually, it wasn't December 25th. It couldn't have been December 25th. It would have been in the spring sometime. Then, in appropriate fashion, A bunch of articles start showing up in December that say, no, it was, in fact, December 25th. And you throw your hands up in the air saying, I give up. That must not be the point. Another question is about the registration or the taxation that is described in this text. Why did Mary have to go with him? 
That is highly unusual for these sort of things. She would not have needed to go with him. And surely a nine-month pregnant woman would not be wanting to go on a journey of this type. Why did Josephus record this Quirinius as living at a later time than in the turn of the millennium 2,000 years ago, and thus making the specific account of events difficult or impossible to explain? Why do all the commentators of the last 500 years scratch their heads at this apparent contradiction? Now, can this contradiction be easily explained by the more recent discovery from archaeological evidence that there were, in fact, two different rulers named Quirinius who lived at two different times? Well, what if this is not the point? Another thing that is not the point of this text is, well, how can we politicize this text? You know, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, they were refugees, they were asylum seekers, they were just like fill in the blank. How can we twist scripture to make this text for or against illegal immigration? I submit to you that the question is, this text is not whether or not we have a moral duty to build a wall in Texas and Mexico border or to throw open the gates. That is not the point of this text. But what is the point of the text? Well, the point of the text is this. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And so our text today will be divided according to three points. These points are number one, glory, number two, fear, and number three, peace. Number one, glory, number two, fear, number three, peace. You'll see in our text that the word glory actually appears in verse 14, the end of our particular text today. Our verse in verse 14 says, glory to God in the highest. What is this word glory? What is the glory of God? You'll see this word glory appearing throughout our scriptures, both in the Old and the New Testament. In the Greek, it's the word doxa. You've heard the song, the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. The word doxology points to the idea of the brightness or the shining brightness, the glory of God that shines forth. Yesterday, we were in, I was in Florida celebrating Christmas with my family, and my brother, my brother-in-law, gave my brother a very, very bright flashlight. It's like 2,500 or 25,000 or something lumens. It's very, very bright. Like, you don't want that thing pointed in your direction when it goes off. This is the idea of brightness. It's blindingly bright. The glory of God is even brighter. Do you remember a few years ago, we had a solar eclipse. A lot of people were outside trying to block the sun while looking up. You saw it all across New York. There were people standing on the sidewalks trying to see the solar eclipse. They told us that the moon was blocking the sun, yet the sun was so blindingly bright that we were warned not to attempt to look at it directly or we would burn our retinas and we would do severe damage to our eyes. The shining brightness of the sun is illustrated in that experiment that much of the country participated in. The word doxa, shining brightness or glory. In the Hebrew, the word is kabod. You've heard the expression or the term ichabod. means no glory. The idea of the word kabod is the idea of majesty or weightiness, or heaviness. It's that feeling in your chest of something being 
very heavy, very significant. Think about a time that you stood at the ground, stood on the ground at the base of the World Trade One building, Freedom Tower. You stood at the ground and you looked up and you felt a dizzying sense of the, the vastness, the highness, the largeness of this building. You saw the clouds moving uh, some 1,700 feet in the sky and your world just started to get a little dizzy. You stood 20 feet from its foundation, looked straight up, and the sky began to spin as you were dizzied by its height. You cannot fully comprehend the meaning of that height, not even from the top. You don't really grasp what it means for something to be some 1,700 feet tall. Or perhaps you're from out west, and maybe you've been to the Grand Canyon. Do you remember the feeling of walking up to the edge of the Grand Canyon where there is no rail? Believe it or not, if you've never been there, there's the Grand Canyon, and it has an edge to it with no rail. And you could literally step off of it just as easily as you could step off of this stage. There's no one there to stop you. And in places, it's a thousand feet straight down. For me, when I was there with my brother a few years ago, just coming within 20 feet of the edge was enough to make my knees literally tremble. Like, like I was shaking. I could not get close to it. My brother walked right up, sat down, and dangled his feet off of it. It wasn't at the thousand foot spot, but it was nevertheless. There was a spot where he just. <laughs> do you remember the feeling? I know some of you do because the way you're nodding your heads or shaking them. Do you remember the feeling walking up to the edge and looking out as far as you can see in wonder and amazement? Or perhaps you haven't been to the, the uh, Grand Canyon, but you've been to the Pacific Ocean. And you've been overwhelmed by the power and the vastness of the waves of the water. You're looking out as far as you can see, and there is no edge. You cannot see the edge of the ocean. You've experienced something of the weightiness or the majesty of these things. You've felt the grandeur. You've seen the brightness and the glory of these things. And these are relatively small things. This is just the Freedom Tower, the Pacific Ocean, or the Grand Canyon. But what happened when you saw those things is it changed your perspective. So now, from this point forward, all holes in the ground will be compared to the Grand Canyon, and all towers will be compared to that tower besides the Burj Khalif. But we're not talking about that. All other bodies of water will compare to the Pacific Ocean because this is a paradigm shift that you experience when you see this thing that is so great, it is so mighty, it is so weighty and heavy. So now you compare it to your, the pond in your backyard in your home in the suburbs and you're like, wow, that's not as big as the Pacific Ocean. Your tree house and the tree in your backyard in your childhood home is not as tall as the Freedom Tower. This paradigm shift changes your perspective, and you can never forget what you saw. You can never forget the glory that you felt. So you who went to the Grand Canyon, your mind instantly went back there as I tried to describe it. It's an experience unlike any other. This is something of what's happening here, and it's something that happens in any spot in the Scripture that speaks of the glory of God, where it is seen on full display by the people there in that text. They are literally shaken by what they have encountered. 
This glory, the glory of God is one of the major themes found in Scripture. From the beginning of the Bible, you see it clearly again and again to the Old Testament, or to the New. We see the glory of God in particular in its strongest, most unveiled fashion in the incarnation of the Son of God. And this is the reason why when the angels appear, they're crying out, glory to God in the highest. Because they're proclaiming a message about the birth of the Savior. So these messengers, this is the meaning of the word angel, these messengers have come to preach a message to announce the the glory of God. Secondly, number two, fear. Look at verses 9 and 10. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. The natural response to this type of glory is fear. The natural response to any sort of glory is fear. You're you're there with your feet dangling over the edge of the Grand Canyon and you're not afraid? Well, the reason you're not afraid is because there's something wrong with you. Because it's not natural. It's not normal to have that perspective. The normal response to something that is that breathtaking in its majesty, that enormous in its weightiness, is fear. Because it makes you recognize how small and how powerless you are. The natural response to glory is fear. In the Bible, we see the response to the glory of God is falling down in fear. Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am undone. This word undone means I am about to die. I am coming coming apart at a molecular level. I am being undone. Why? Because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Every encounter with the presence of the glory of God results in fear. Now, unfortunately, we oftentimes try to neuter this word fear, and we would say, no, I'm not talking about terror. Trembling, shaking in my boots, fear. I'm talking about respect. I don't think that that's correct. I don't think that it's correct to to reframe fear as respect the way you would respect Queen Elizabeth II because, oh, you know, she's a proper lady, so you respect her. No. No, I believe that's entirely missing the point and that this is, in fact, terror. This is falling on your face terror. This is pee your pants terror. This is your heart melting in dread terror. Please notice that this fear that these shepherds are having is not even because of seeing God. It's just the angels. This isn't even fear of God. It's the fear of angels. These angels are the shining ones who circle the throne day and night and cry out, holy, holy, holy. These are the messengers of God who are sent by God to accomplish his purposes. Remember how an angel of the Lord was sent by God to kill 185,000 soldiers of the Assyrian army? 
Do you remember from last week, the Assyrian army? That's the most powerful, most dangerous, the the scariest army in the world at the time of Isaiah, which was in our text last week, Isaiah 9. Well, Isaiah 37 verse 36 records this event. It's also recorded in 2 Kings 19. So a singular angel was sent by God to kill 185,000 soldiers from the scariest army in the world. Angels are not the cute little naked babies with the wings. This is not the precious moments angels. The difference in power and might between these angels and us humans is greater than the difference in strength between the strength of an infant and an adult. Imagine asking an infant to grab your family suitcase off the luggage carousel of the baggage claim. It's just not going to happen. There's a gap between the strength of angels and the strength of humans, and it's much greater than what we have categories to understand. The difference in the strength between an angel and us is not only greater, but they're entirely different completely. They're different in type. They're different in power and strength. It is like an iPhone 13 compared to a rotary phone. Like they are completely different. When the shepherds saw the glory of angels, they were terrified. This is the reason why the angel said to them, fear not, do not be afraid. Now, why? So our first point, beholding glory, even if it's just, well, it's the glory of God, but the angels reflect that and they preach that and proclaim that, that fills them with fear. The angels have a message to give. This message is point three. Peace. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. These angels have entered the darkness of this field, literally, where the shepherds are out there guarding the flocks, guarding the sheep trying to keep them safe from predators that would prowl around at night looking for an easy snack. The angels entered that darkness and they have shown a great light to the shepherds. And these angels, like they often do throughout Scripture, they have come with a message to proclaim. Notice how God uses angels to proclaim messages. It's literally their name, messenger. Revelation John has this vision that he gives to the churches in in Turkey or Asia Minor, and it says, to the angel of the church of wherever, which really just means to the messenger of this place. Angels are always used or are very frequently used to proclaim messages. Yet God has determined that at this point in history, his gospel will be preached not by angels, but by Humans, by men. Yet there is a time in the future, Revelation 14, 6 describes of this event in the future, where angels will proclaim the gospel. But for now, that's not where we are. 
For now, this is the time where humans have to preach. That's the whole point of Romans chapter 10. How will they hear unless someone preaches? So these angels have come and they're preaching a message there in the first century to the shepherds. And this is a message of peace. It's not actually proclaiming the content of the message, but it's telling them about the message. It's giving them the topic. How will peace come to the earth? How will good men, goodwill come to, to men? How will peace come to men from God? Well, it's about this Savior. Ephesians 2.14 says that he, Jesus, is our peace. Jesus himself is our peace. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the subject of the incarnation. It is the subject of the message of the gospel, which is that peace with God is coming through Jesus Christ. This message of on earth peace, goodwill towards men, raises a question of how do you plan to get this goodwill? This goodwill that the angels are describing, how do you plan on getting that? What will you offer to Jesus? What will you bring to barter with the king of the universe? What is the token of your peace? You see, in a wedding, the Bride and groom bring rings as a symbol, as a token. What are you going to bring? Well, what can you bring? Ultimately, the answer is nothing. There's nothing that you can offer to God to barter with the king of the universe. What are you going to give him? Gold? That's the pavement of heaven. Where did you get it from? Well, you got it from his earth. You have nothing that you can give him. There's nothing that you can offer to God to put God in debt to you. You can't say, hey, I'm going to give you this thing in exchange for you giving me something. No, that's not how this works. Rather, it's like the song says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to that cross I cling. That is the essence of saving faith. That is the core of the gospel, is uh, the response to the gospel, and that is that you can't, do anything to save yourself. The fact is that Jesus did actually pay it all. So the essence of saving faith is this desperation. It is emptiness. It is looking for rescue. It is like that small child. And I'm sorry, there will be many, many, many small child illustrations probably from this point forward because I have a small child. And in that small child, I see desperation, I see faith, I see trust, I see him looking for help because he can't do anything. A cry of help, a look for rescue. This is the essence of saving faith. Though it's not looking to our parents for that food, it's looking to God in heaven for rescue. And that rescue is through Jesus Christ. One of my favorite songs written by Horatius Bonner says, Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do 
can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Your voice alone, O Lord, can speak to me of grace. Your power alone, O Son of God, can all my sin erase. No other work but yours, no other blood will do. No strength but that which is divine can bear me safely through. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. I bless the Christ of God. I rest on love divine. And with unfaltering lip and heart, I call this Savior mine. His cross dispels each doubt. I bury in his tomb each thought of unbelief and fear, each lingering shade of gloom. I praise the God of grace. I trust his truth and might. He calls me his. I call him mine, my God, my joy and light. Tis he who saveth me and freely pardon gives. I love because he loveth me. I live because he lives. I remember in my own life, when I grew up in a very Christian household, a very religious household of memorizing scripture every morning and reading the Bible as a family and praying every night. But nevertheless, there was this, this emphasis that I sort of absorbed, like, um, what is it called when you put the book under your pillow and you think you're just going to absorb the, the contents of it? Osmosis, yes. I got this through osmosis, which was the idea that um, sure, Jesus died for your sins, and he's the one who paid for it, but, but if you're going to make it, you better get your act together. I sort of, It wasn't a conscious thing, but it was this, this subconscious idea that it was like a 99% and 1% arrangement. That Jesus pays a whole bunch, and that God looks at me, and if I have enough faith, then that'll be enough to get me across the line. And so then in that whole world, that whole system of thought, there was this constant struggle with assurance, constant talking about assurance, an emphasis on, okay, well, you were saved, but do you have assurance? This is part of this um, separated view of uh, salvation, and then you consecrate your life, and then you hit your sanctification as this deeper life, higher life sort of thing. It's called Keswick theology, K-E-S-W-I-C-K. So in that system, you have a lot of people who are saved, but they don't have assurance because they haven't surrendered yet. And there's this emphasis is on themselves. The response that that was, um, the response that came from that was that system of thought based out of a seminary in Dallas, Texas called Dallas Theological Seminary. A guy named Charles Charles Ryrie, Zane Hodges, um, Lewis Berry Schaefer, those were the, the, the men behind that theology. And then uh, a few decades ago, John MacArthur wrote a book to attack that. And so there was this war between them. Uh, it's called, his book was called The Gospel According to Jesus, The Gospel According to Paul, various books on that theme. But the issue with that whole debate is that it is um, just forgetting about or ignoring the historic doctrines of the law gospel distinction which is that the law 
holds up your demands. It holds up the demands of God. And when you look at it, you recognize you are a sinner. You are helpless. You did not measure up. And so you're condemned under the weight of your sin and the law, which exposes you. And then we bring in the gospel. And the gospel is entirely the work of Christ. It is the good news. It is not good news and bad news. It is not a whole bunch of extra stuff that's attached to the gospel. The gospel is exclusively the work of Christ. Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-3. That's the gospel. The gospel is that core message. Nothing else is the gospel. There's gospel prerequisites. There's a gospel response. There's a call to, the, to, to believe, repent and believe, but that is not the gospel. The doctrines of God's character, that's also not the gospel. The holiness of God, the creation of the world, that, none of that's the gospel either. The gospel is specifically that middle part, which is what Jesus did to pay for your sins. So when you clarify these categories, when you have them clear in your mind and you recognize that, that when you come to Christ and you offer him something, that whatever it is that you're here to give him, that's not paying for your sins. Because Jesus paid for your sins. Now, is that saying that you can receive Christ and, and then do whatever you want because the more you sin, the more grace abounds? Well, if you're not asking that question, you're not preaching the gospel, according to Romans. Because that's the logical question from Romans 5 into Romans 6. But the one who is indwelt by the Spirit of God has been given a new heart, a new nature, a new, a, a new family. They're adopted into the family of God. They're now uh, part of that family. They're disciplined as a son of God. They're, they're called. They're, <laughs> they receive so many things in Christ. But your sanctification does not determine whether or not you reach heaven. It is your justification. It is whether or not you've been counted righteous in Christ. So it is thy work alone, O Christ. It is he who saveth me and freely pardon gives. When this idea came home and hit home to me and I recognized, I realized it is truly that Jesus paid it all. It was revolutionary in my thinking. Suddenly fears of assurance, did I really say the right words in my prayer? All that stuff is just gone. Completely removed as a category error because it's not about your words. It's about the work of Christ. And that the essence of saving faith is that recognition. It is knowing that, knowledge, assent, and trust. It is knowing that, believing it, and depending upon it. The angels appeared to these shepherds with a message. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. This goodwill towards men is only able to be accomplished because Christ coming into the world to do it. The, the message that the angels proclaim to the shepherds is the same message that we preach today and every Sunday. Oh, I am so thankful that our church is not a um, 
seeker-sensitive church marketing movement type church because what they, those types of churches have to do, you've probably seen the footage of the, the drummers on the cables in a church service. What that comes from, the reason why people do that is because they have to come up with something new to attract people to come to the church. It's called attractionalism. When churches build their church on that sort of idea, they're always trying to come up with something new in order to get people to come to church. Now, for us today, we recognize that like 80% of our church is on vacation, and that's fine. We're not, so we're here. But we don't have to come up with something new this Sunday or any Sunday. It's the old story. The same story that the angels referenced and alluded to in that field. This message is that the holy God, who is almighty and all-glorious, has entered into the human condition. He has taken on flesh, and he's become a man like us, yet without sin. And he has met all of the terms and conditions that justice demands. And he has walked in sinless perfection in order to render himself the spotless lamb, Remember the lamb, the shepherds in the fields, the the shepherds are watching the lambs for the temple sacrifices. Jesus, he is the one who has made reconciliation by his blood. He has been risen from the dead and conquered sin and death. He has ascended into heaven where he lives to intercede for us and he will come again in power and glory. So then, The question for you is, do you recognize that? Have you been reconciled to God? All of this reminded of these words from the Nicene Creed, which say, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. So what then is the point? What is the point of this whole text? What is the point of the incarnation of Jesus Christ? And what is the point of this Christmas season? Well, it is the message that the angels proclaimed there in that field. And that that point is this. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that Jesus came into the world. That he was born of Mary as a true man. Yet he retained his deity in order to fulfill the promises that were made to meet the requirements of a Savior. To live, to die, to rise again, to be our Savior. Lord, I pray that you would help each of us this Christmas season, that for those who are uncertain of this, 
for those who are uncertain of their salvation, that they would come to know Jesus Christ. To look away from their sin and to look away from their self-righteousness and to trust only in Him. Lord, I thank you that we're able to gather today and to remember Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.